Episode 52 Genesis 17, 9-14 The Covenant of Circumcision Shadows of the Coming Messiah The conditions of the covenant which God expects are laid out here in verses 9-14 to of Genesis 17. It begins, Then God said to Abraham, You and your descendants must keep this agreement from now on. The very first thing we see, though, is that the conditions apply not only to Abraham, but to his descendants after him through their generations. Verse 10, This is my agreement with you and all your descendants. Every male among you must be circumcised. Circumcision is the sign of the covenants that God mandates. In the Old Testament, circumcision was more than a physical sign. It was something that was to be accompanied with an internal change of the heart, away from the world and directed toward God. Remember our great rule of interpretation. Context, context, context. If we keep things in context, we'll keep from the error of heresy. And mandating circumcision to meet the requirements of the law is, according to Paul, heresy. Just so you know what a heresy is, I'll explain it to you. Bad doctrine isn't always a heresy. The difference is that bad doctrine doesn't keep someone from being saved, but heresy does. Bad doctrine can lead to a loss of joy, or simply looking stupid, but heresy will lead to hell. And teaching a heresy doesn't keep someone from being saved, it keeps the next person from being saved. The land covenant to Abraham's descendants was given on an oath. The physical descendants of Abraham are the recipients of the covenant. Regarding the land, there were no strings attached to it. However, God is now making a condition to the people who would receive the promises made to Abraham. This doesn't change the land covenant, but it defines those who will qualify to receive it. So let's think of it like this to help you understand. A very rich person comes to me and says, I am giving to you and to your descendants the island known as Gozo. This is unconditional and one-sided. This is what has come about since chapter 12 of Genesis, with the land promise. Later, the same rich person comes to me and says, This is the sign of the covenant. Every one of your male descendants will have a beard. Anyone without a beard is excluded from the promise. The land promise hasn't changed. The land is still given to me and my descendants. But those who are actually entitled to it have certain obligations. If only one of my descendants grows a beard, then only one will get the land. But the land still belongs to me and my descendants. Verse 10 continues. You must obey this agreement. There is a responsibility in the individual toward the word of promise. An assent to the promise allows its fulfillment. Verse 11 and 12. Cut away the foreskin to show that you follow the agreement between me and you. From now on, when the baby boy is eight days old, you will circumcise him. This includes any boy born among your people or any who is your slave. He would not be one of your descendants. For the covenant sons of Abraham, circumcision of the foreskin isn't just mandated to bring someone into the covenant, but there are specific procedures which accompany the rite. The first is that it is to be accomplished on the child when he is eight days old. The number eight in the Bible consistently signifies new beginnings. But why did God specify day eight? On the eighth day, the amount of prothrombine present actually is elevated 
above 100% of normal, and is the only day in the male's life in which this will be the case, under normal conditions. If surgery is to be performed, day 8 is a perfect day to do it. Vitamin K and prothrombine levels are at their peak. Dr. McMillan observed that Abraham did not pick the eighth day after many centuries of trial and error experiments. Neither he nor any of his company from the ancient city of Ur in the Chaldees ever had been circumcised. It was a day picked by the creator of vitamin K. Even in the seemingly bloody ritual of circumcision, we have a display of the wisdom of the creator and his tending to the health and welfare of his covenant people. If this is how God treats the physical nature of his people, how much more sure and reliable will he treat the spiritual promises that he has made to us? But there is something important for us to consider in circumcision that can help us with our own Christian families, starting with Abraham, but following through every generation since. The parent, the parent is the one responsible for circumcising their child. The child is a passive recipient of the right. If we look at this example of the Hebrews, we can understand why they've held together and prospered for the past 4,000 years. It is because they are acknowledging their responsibility to the covenant and demonstrating a hope in the promise it holds. If we, as faithful Christians, act in the same responsible manner, we can trust that our families will be equally blessed. This isn't talking about physical blessing, but the blessing of knowing that our children will be a part of the spiritual heritage which Christ established for us. We have the responsibility to raise our children in a godly manner, just as the Hebrews were to faithfully circumcise their children. When we do, we have the hope that Christ will take hold of them and carry them through to his eternal dwelling. There are no ultimate guarantees, because every person is an individual with free will. But by following the guidelines of the Bible, we have a much stronger hope than if we neglect our responsibility as Christian parents. Verse 13, so circumcise every baby boy. Circumcise him, whether he is born in your family or bought as a slave. Your bodies will be marked. This will show that you are part of my agreement that lasts forever. The entire purpose of circumcision has a greater fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ and looks forward to him. The symbolism points back to the fall of man and forward to the restoration from that fall in Jesus Christ. Verse 14. Any male who is not circumcised will be separated from his people. He has broken my agreement. By cutting the male organ in the rite of circumcision, a picture was being made of the cutting away of sin. This is why even those who were purchased as slaves were to be circumcised. It was a picture of cutting away the transfer of sin within the covenant community. But as like so many things in the Bible, this is only a picture. The sin still transfers from father to child, and all people, males and females alike, inherit that sin from the father. Thus the need for a father without sin in order for there to be a child without sin. This is the reason for both the virgin birth and the incarnation. If these didn't come about, then there would be no salvation ever for any human. Man would be eternally lost and separated from God. But God 
in his infinite wisdom, solved the problem. Sin transfers through the man, but Jesus was born sinless because he was born of God, the Father and Mary. However, in order to prevail over sin, he would have to live a sinless life as well. If he failed, he wouldn't have been a qualified substitute for Adam. It is the resurrection that proves that Jesus was born of God. It also proves that he was not only born sinless, but he also lived a sinless life, fulfilling the law. The resurrection is 100% conditional upon the virgin birth. No virgin birth equals no resurrection. We can know this because babies that die don't resurrect. If this weren't true, then babies who have never sinned when they died would come back to life. Sin is inherited from the Father. However, the virgin birth doesn't guarantee the resurrection, nor does living a sinless life if one isn't virgin born. Both the virgin birth and a sinless life are conditions for the resurrection. If Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, then he would have inherited Adam's sin. But even though he was born of a virgin, he still needed to live perfectly sinless throughout his entire life. The resurrection is conditional upon a sinless life. A sinless life is conditional upon the virgin birth. Therefore, the resurrection proves the virgin birth. The virgin birth proves Jesus was born of God and of Mary. Therefore, Jesus is God's Son, the God-Man. If you can grasp this, then you can see why God gave the people who would usher in the Messiah a picture of what was coming. One who would be born without sin. And hopefully, you can see why baptism did not replace circumcision as a sign for the covenant community, and why infant baptism is a pointless gesture. Paul says that these Hebrews, whose men were circumcised, were also baptized into Moses. Therefore, these are two distinct and separate concepts, and baptism cannot be a replacement for circumcision. Both men and women come from Adam and received his sin through their father, and therefore both men and women receive baptism, and that only after accepting Christ as Saviour. Children of believers are already sanctified by their believing parent, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 14. As Peter states in his first epistle, when speaking of the regeneration by the Spirit, there is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3 verse 21. Baptism, the regeneration of the human spirit by the baptism of the Holy Spirit is what saves us. Water baptism is a picture of this regeneration. And so it comes after accepting Christ, not before. Oh, what joy we have 
knowing this regeneration. Hallelujah and Amen.